Don't worry, everybody, we're still not getting weird. I mean, unless you consider visions of slaughtered lambs standing with seven eyes and seven horns weird. This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Welcome back to The Backdrop, everybody. We are continuing our journey through the book of Revelation with chapters four and five this episode, looking at the visions of God and Christ, which begin the visionary sections of this book. We've turned from the letters to the churches and towards something a bit different from here on out. And the result is that this is where things get a bit more controversial with many different interpretations and in different circles. You have the more bonkers interpretations, of course, but even amongst the scholars I'm looking at, who are mostly not bonkers, things start to diverge a bit here, and then even more so as we get into chapter six and beyond. I'm going to do my best to present what I think is the most convincing option as we go from here, but I'll also at times acknowledge some of the alternatives when it's appropriate to do so. So with all of that said, let's dive in with the first section of chapter four. After this, I looked... And behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard as a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will reveal to you what must happen after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, there stood a throne in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And the seated one was like jasper stone and carnelian in appearance, and around the throne was a rainbow like emerald in appearance, and around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and twenty-four elders clothed in dazzling clothes sat on the thrones with gold crowns on their heads, and lightning and rumbling and thunder went out from the throne, and seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God, were burning in front of the throne, and in front of the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal." And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like an ox, and the third creature had a face like a human, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of whom had six wings, were covered with eyes all around and inside, and without ceasing they sing day and night. The vision begins with an open door, an image that we saw appear on a couple of occasions in chapter 3 in the letters to the churches. A couple of the scholars I read pointed out that the verb open is in the perfect tense in Greek, a tense used to indicate a permanent or ongoing state of being rather than a temporary one. Jesus is the one who opens the door to heaven, giving those who stay faithful to Jesus access, direct access, ongoing permanent access to God's throne room itself. The vision here is one that would have been somewhat familiar in that day. God as king, surrounded by a council of advisors and attendants. Any earthly king would have this, and so obviously God must too. This is an important note. The point of much of this vision is not, this is exactly the logistical setup of God's actual throne room and who stands where and what exactly they are doing. The point is, God is the true king. And the elements of this vision are meant to fill out that meaning. What does it mean for God to be the true king? So does God sit on an actual throne? Almost certainly not. Is God king? Of course. And so metaphorically, God sits on a throne. So it is absolutely true that God sits on a throne surrounded by a heavenly council, even if there is no actual throne or literal council, because it is absolutely true that God is the king of the whole earth. This requires a bit of a shift in our thinking and our way of approaching the visions um, if we're used to approaching the Bible as exclusively a book of nonfiction. 
Fiction and nonfiction are, and have always been, different ways of saying true things. I doubt it would take many of you long to think of an example of a piece of fiction that was actually truer, in any important sense, than many nonfiction pieces that you've read. It's simply not the case that nonfiction equals truth and fiction equals falsehood. Fiction and nonfiction can both include truth and they can both include falsehood. Literal and figurative language are both tools to communicate truth and are both tools used to deceive. Jesus, of course, uses fiction as a tool in his parables to say fundamentally true things about God. And John does here as well. All that is to say, these visions are true because they tell us true things about who God is, who we are, what God's up to, and what we should be up to as we follow Jesus. They are not true because they tell us who is standing where in some literal throne room of God. I kind of feel like that should be an uncontroversial point to make, but who boy, it very much isn't. What we're talking about here is what it means to take the Bible seriously. Forcing literal interpretations on passages and genres that weren't meant to be literal is not taking the Bible seriously. It's the opposite. And so, hey guys, this is a metaphor, is going to continue to be a refrain as we make our way through the weirder parts of this book, because we want to take Revelation seriously. This particular vision draws heavily from the throne room visions in Ezekiel, that's chapters 1 and 2, and also in Daniel chapter 7. Brian Blunt quotes a scholar named G.K. Beale, who points out that, in fact, these two chapters of Revelation repeat 14 elements from Daniel 7, verse 9 and following, in the same basic order, but with some small variations. John is intentionally connecting his vision with the Old Testament visions of God in order to make the point that God, the God of the Old Testament, that is, is the one Christians should stay faithful to. And, as we will see in chapter 5, that Jesus is connected to that God of the Old Testament as well. John is saying, my message is the same as the one of the Old Testament prophets. Stay faithful to Yahweh and steer clear of idols. The vision here is one of the heavenly reality, an idea we've seen on a couple of occasions already in this book. John is pulling back the curtain and showing us what is true in heaven. N.T. Wright says that in the ancient understanding, heaven was not up there in the sky somewhere, and it certainly wasn't non-existent as many might think today. Instead, heaven was right there, a parallel reality to the one here on earth. If John were writing today, I'm convinced he might use the image of the multiverse (laughs) to describe heaven, of of a parallel universe that isn't some geographical distance away or some temporal distance away, like in the past or in the future, but rather it's right there. And if the door were to open, we could just step right through, as John does here, or as a sci-fi character might travel through a portal to another dimension or something in a movie today. In other words, this vision is, for John, what is currently happening, not what will happen in the future. It's what's going on right on the other side of the door. One last quick note about the nature of this vision. John is going on a spiritual journey here. It is a vision, not a physical trip. John's explicit in verse 2 that he was in the spirit when he had this vision. In other words, this is not a vision of the rapture as some have interpreted it, not even remotely. Okay, a couple other features to note about the vision here. First, this is what must happen after this, according to the voice John hears in verse 1. These things must happen for two reasons. First, because of who God is, in confronting evil, 
and in being faithful to God's promises to bring creation to the end goal, the dream since the beginning, God is faithful, so these things must happen. And second, because of what sin is when confronted with God's goodness and God's dream. Sin is going to sin, in other words. And the powers of the world that are confronted with Jesus' claim to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, well, they aren't going to take kindly to that challenge to their own power. If Jesus is going to be faithful, and he is, then the powers of the earth are going to do what they're going to do in response to that. Both are inevitable. This must happen. Blunt says it this way, if Rome indeed believes in its own lordship and prosecutes that belief through conquest, empire building, and self-deification, it has no alternative but to eliminate any force within its realm that witnesses to a contrary belief. And that contrary belief is what this book, as we've said repeatedly already, is all about. Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza, the feminist scholar, argues the central theological question of chapters four and five, as well as the whole church, is who is the true Lord of the world? Jesus must answer with the response of I am, and Rome must rebel against that challenge. So it's inevitable. One thing I thought was so interesting rhetorically about how this vision is reported, and I tried to make this come through a little bit and how I read it without being distracting is the breathlessness of it all. I counted 19 ands linking the vision together, and I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this. John is trying desperately, and I bet failing, to get it all out, to communicate the totality of the vision. And this vision is full of light and noise and fire and gems and flashes and thunder all in the midst of the throne. John's grasping for language that adequately describes this overwhelming vision of God. It's sensory overload. And so sometimes, as we will see, there's an almost dream logic to it all. Seeing images and knowing stuff without it being said explicitly, I think keeping that in mind can be really helpful. Reading this like a dream report, not in the sense of it all being made up and meaningless, but with meaning communicated in ways that are non-linear, associative, shifting and altering and swirling together. That's what this vision is. And so trying to read it that way will only help us in understanding it. And it will avoid us getting too caught up in analyzing stuff in a literal, linear way when that was never how this was intended to be read in the first place. I mean, I suppose John could have just said, I had a vision that God was power and majesty that overwhelmed my senses. But that uh, doesn't quite capture it as well, does it? So next, let's look at the others present in this vision. First, there's the 24 elders. Some have, uh, again, and we'll see this same sort of thing come up so often in this book, they've gotten really rigid and literal here, saying these 24 are the 12 apostles from the New Testament and the 12 patriarchs from the Old Testament, as if Matthew, John, James, Peter, Judah, Simeon, Levi, and all the rest are the ones that are actually sitting there on the thrones. The problem here is that John doesn't say that at all, and you'd think that he would if that were his point, instead of using the more, much more vague term elders to describe these figures. What is true is that the book of Revelation consistently uses multiples of 12 to represent the people of God, and we'll see more of this as we go forward. And so I think the best way to understand this instance of 24 elders is that you have 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel, 
not the literal patriarchs, because these aren't literal figures on literal thrones, but rather representations of the whole tribe. Or, more accurately, the twelve collectively represent all the people of Israel. And then the other twelve would collectively represent all the New Testament church, the followers of Jesus. And so the 24 then are a representation of the whole people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Remember, this is a vision for John of current reality in the alternate universe of heaven. So the point is not which individuals are in God's presence. The point is that the whole of God's people are in God's presence right now. In some sense, we're on earth going about our day. And when we are a part of God's people, in some sense, we are also sitting in God's throne room, praising God day and night. In some sense, the people of God who have died are dead in a grave. And in some sense, they too are sitting in God's presence, awaiting the resurrection at the same time. One other piece of this, the crowns. Crowns symbolized in the ancient world honor, royalty, and victory. And crowns for the Romans were usually bestowed on individuals as an individual honor for some service provided or victory won. But in the New Testament, the crowns and the thrones are always communal, like they are here. The whole of God's people are sitting on thrones with crowns of honor and victory on their heads. It's a striking vision of God's consistent way of doing things, of sharing power and honor as broadly as possible. This is, of course, in direct contrast to the zero-sum game of the regular world where some win and some lose. Some get a crown of victory, some don't. Some get honor, others not so much. So that's what's going on with the 24 elders. And then second, let's quickly take a look at these four creatures in the midst of the throne. First, the words do literally mean in the midst of the throne, but many translations make it next to the throne or something like that. But I think this is exactly what I was talking about earlier. In a literal throne room, if there were literal creatures, they couldn't be in the midst of the throne because two things can't literally take up the same space. But this isn't literal. This is dream logic and visions swirling together and shifting and moving. John says, I think, the creatures are in the midst of the throne because they are. (laughs) There's a throne and there's these creatures and they're both in the same space somehow because this is a vision. These creatures are caught up in the presence of God, not close to God or near God or next to God. They are, in some sense, in God. But what are these creatures? Like a lion, like an ox, like an eagle, like a human? Well, the king of the wild animals was the lion. The king of the domesticated animals was the ox. The king of the flying animals is the eagle. And the king of all animals are humans. This is all animal creation, represented by the kings of each animal type. Again, John could have written, and I saw representatives of the whole of the animal kingdom. But this is better. The fullness of conscious creation is caught up in the presence of God. They are covered in eyes because they are all seen. They can see throughout the earth because these creatures exist throughout the earth in that parallel universe that we call reality. And in the parallel universe that John calls reality, they are in the midst of God. And these creatures and the elders, they sing day and night. We read, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is coming. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one sitting on the throne and they worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they throw their crowns before the throne singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. The creatures sing and then the elders fall down before God throwing their crowns before the throne. This is what vassal kings would have done before Caesar. It's a display of extreme submission before a greater power than oneself. The hymns themselves are full of allusions to the way God is described in the Old Testament, and they're fairly self-explanatory, so I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on them, except to bring up a point that Brian Blunt makes about the hymns in this book more generally. They are songs of praise to God, yes, but we would be making a mistake to leave them in the so-called spiritual realm because the things God is being praised for are consistently things that Caesar claimed for himself. It is not an accident, Blunt says, that they use the same descriptors, almighty, the one who was, is, and will be, Lord and God, etc., the same descriptors used to describe Caesar or a Greco-Roman god's magnificence. And in that light, Blunt says, they are the very essence of political worship, by which he means they make a political statement about where our allegiances lie. One thing I found striking when we put all of these pieces of this vision in chapter four together, if this is not a future reality, but the current reality in the alternate universe of heaven, if the creatures represent the whole of conscious creation, if the elders represent the whole of the people of God, and if they are all continually praising God, then that means, when we put those four things together, all of creation and all the people of God are praising God as they go about their everyday lives. The ox, for example, does not take a break from grazing to praise God for a minute and then go back to eating. He isn't toggling back and forth from the pasture to the throne room. He is simultaneously doing both. In one reality, being a normal chewing his cud, pulling a plow ox, and in the other reality, at the same time, if we just could open the door and see, praising God in the midst of God's throne. By living his animal life, he is also praising God. And the same, then, would be true for us humans. We do not have to take a break from our day and get all set up for a time of prayer and worship. By living out our normal day, we are in the presence of God, literally in the midst of God, and praising God through our everyday lives. By living our human life, we are also praising God. And this can include verbal expressions of God's power and majesty, worship in that sense, But that isn't how the lion does it. And yet John tells us the lion, and therefore all wild animals, are there in the throne praising God. Living fully human, everyday lives, in harmony with and reflective of God's character, is to be in the presence of God, praising God day and night. That is the picture John is giving us here. And then, moving on to chapter 5, John does some really interesting things in this chapter. So let's dive into it. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a mighty angel preaching in a great voice, who is worthy to open the scroll by breaking its seals? And no one was able in heaven or on the earth or under the earth 
to open the scroll or look into it. And I wept profusely because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The vision shifts to a scroll. This would have been understood by John's readers as some sort of royal decree, one that communicates the king's will and includes the plans to execute that will. The question then of who is worthy to open the seals is, who is able to put this decree into effect? Who is able to be the king's, God in this case, partner or representative or agent in executing God's plans for creation? Here's where we need to bring in what we talked about in our recent series of sermons, The Mission of God. And this is also drawing on N.T. Wright's Revelation for Everyone commentary. The plans God has have the end goal of all creation being in harmony with and reflective of God's character. And the means by which God will execute those plans is through humanity. God will partner with humanity and humanity will be God's representatives in the world. But humanity opted out, chose not to represent God to the world. So God chose Israel to be God's holy people, representatives of a holy God who doesn't operate like all the other gods. But Israel decided to act like all the other nations instead, and so didn't represent God either. So who is worthy of opening the seals? Humanity was supposed to, but proved unfaithful. Israel was supposed to, but was also unfaithful. Is no one worthy? God is faithful to the plan. The scroll says that humans, and specifically Israel, need to execute the plans written on this royal decree. And so a human from Israel needs to do it. That's the plan. And so John weeps because the failures of humanity and of Israel seem to mean that God's plans have been thwarted and evil and injustice will win the day. But don't cry, John is told, because there is a lion from the tribe of Judah who has conquered. The lion is a symbol of royalty and power in the ancient world. It was a descriptor uh, used of Judah and the kings who came out of Judah, David and his descendants, in the Old Testament. And here, of course, this is meaning Jesus. Jesus is the faithful human, the faithful Israelite who is worthy to be God's representative because Jesus has been faithful to the very end. He is the one who can open the scroll, the faithful one who will bring God's plans to their completion. And so John turns to see this lion, but the vision, well, it doesn't match the words. Then I saw among the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as though executed, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which represent the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were executed and by your blood you ransomed for God, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them for our God a kingdom of priests and they will rule over the earth. Then I saw and heard the sound of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders and their number was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with a great voice. Worthy is the lamb who was executed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and upon the sea and everything in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures sang amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. John hears about a lion. When he looks, he sees a lamb. Again, it is among, in the midst of, the throne and the creatures and the elders. These are shifting, moving visions of a complex reality. Jesus is among God, among the animal creation, among the people of God all at once. The lion is a lamb, and not just a lamb, an executed lamb, which has died, but now stands alive. The one who is worthy to execute God's vision for the world is not a lion, or rather, it is a lion, but not only a lion. It is a royal, powerful figure. But then the lamb shows us what type of king this lion is, how this king uses power. Jesus is the lion. Jesus is the lamb. They are inextricable from each other and interpret each other. And we need to hold on to both of them. Only a lion and you have Caesar or any of the kings of the earth who use their power to violently conquer and subdue all enemies. Only a lamb, and you have a victim, executed by the ones who really have the power in this world, with no recourse. But this lion is a lamb, and this lamb is a lion. Our God is holy, a king not like the other kings, a God not like the other gods. And so in this reality, the true reality, John would tell us, True power is wielded self-sacrificially. True honor is gained through vulnerability and what some would see as shame because the cross was the most shameful way to die in Roman culture. These reversals we've already seen in the letters to the churches, but they are a key interpretive principle for us moving forward. The lamb is how God expresses power. This is what God's kingship looks like. Look at that executed lamb, John is saying, That is what power and honor actually look like, in contrast to the systems of power and honor that surround us. The church far too often has acted as if Jesus was only a lion, but that's the way the oppressors of the world work, and we cannot represent God that way. Sometimes, far less often I would say, the church has acted as if Jesus was only a lamb, but that's the way the oppressed victims of the world work, and we cannot represent God that way either. The lion who is a lamb rejects the oppressive power systems of this world, but also resists them, nonviolently witnessing to an alternate way of conquering, self-sacrificial resistance that is faithful to who our God is. There's been no end of debate about what exactly the image of a lamb is referring to. I've laid out what I think to be the main meaning John is getting at, but there are some who want to tie it primarily to the Passover story or to the sacrifices that accompany the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament sacrificial system. What's most likely is that John is, as he does over and over with the Old Testament in this book, weaving together several references and allusions to say, Jesus is like this, and also like that, and also like that, and also like that. No one image or illusion fully encompasses what John has to say about Jesus, but pieces of each add meaning. The Passover story certainly seems to be a piece of the meaning here, where the people of Israel put the blood of lambs over their doorways to protect themselves from the angel of death. It's important to note here that this would not be an image of atoning for sin. 
The Passover lamb did not atone for sin. It protected and liberated God's people from slavery in order for Israel to be a kingdom of priests representing God to the whole earth, which is exactly what verse 10 of chapter 5 says Jesus has done. Jesus makes the people that fulfills Israel's mission, that fulfills humanity's mission, a people from every nation and every tribe that would rule well over creation. And then two final quick notes. First, the vision of the lamb is, as one of the scholars I read put it, grotesque, if taken literally. Seven eyes, seven horns, slaughtered but standing, don't try to picture it before bed. But here again, we need to remember the figurative, dreamlike logic of these visions. Did John actually see a lamb with its throat slit and seven eyes and seven horns sticking out all over the place? I mean, it's possible, I guess. But horns are symbols of power. Seven of them would be a symbol of the fullness of power. Eyes are for seeing. Seven of them a symbol for fullness of seeing. This lamb is, in other words, all-seeing and all-powerful. What I wonder is if this is like when we have a dream and we see a person and we know something about them, but we don't have any idea why we know that thing. And then if we were trying to explain the dream afterwards, we'd have no way of communicating how we know what we just kind of knew in the dream. I wonder if John's vision is like that. He saw a vision of a lamb that had been executed but was alive, and he just knew that it was all-powerful, that he just knew that it was all-seeing, but wasn't totally sure how he knew it. He just did. And so then in trying to explain the vision, how do you communicate that truth? Well, I just knew it was all powerful, so it had seven horns. I knew it was all seen, so it had seven eyes. That sure beats, well, I don't know, man, I just kind of like knew it somehow, you know? I just kind of like, it just was like all powerful, man. The images in chapter five get at this a bit more artfully, I think, than that. (laughs) And finally, the content of the hymns in chapter five being sung to the lamb are very similar in some ways identical, to the content of the ones sung to Yahweh in chapter 4. John is making a not-too-subtle point about who Jesus is here. The Yahweh praised in Ezekiel and Daniel and chapter 4 of Revelation is this Jesus, the Lamb who was executed. They are one and the same. And that means this Jesus is the king over the whole earth. To go back to that central theme mentioned by Elizabeth Schusler fiorenza earlier, Jesus is king. Caesar is not. Jesus is faithful where humanity and Israel were not. Jesus will assuredly bring to pass the plans God has for the world. And those who stay faithful to him will be given the honor and life that might be taken away from them in the present. Thanks for joining me for chapters four and five here. Next time, things get weird as the plans for the scroll begin to roll out. We're going to be going through all of chapters six and seven, and then just the first few verses of chapter 8 in the next episode. So read ahead for that. And as I've said before, if you have any questions or things you'd like addressed further, you can send them in to PomonaValleyChurch at gmail.com, or you can connect to us via Instagram at Pomona Valley Church. I will see you next time. Bye. <laughs>